it would help if I had actually put a battery in this. The battery kept running out, so I thought to myself, self, I'm going to take the battery out after I use it each time and then put it back in so as to save the battery. That only works if you remember to put it back in. But it is good to see so many here this morning. I was telling Mark before services started that, you know, a Sunday like this can go 50-50. It could either be that so many of our people are off traveling and visiting that there may not be anybody here. Or it could be that so many family members are visiting us that we'll have a good number. And it looks like that's what happened. And I'm glad to see you here this morning. You know, Norman, who was our preacher for many, many years, this may shock you, but he and I did not always agree on everything. I know. Who knew? But there's one thing that he and I agree on. I remember him saying how much he loved this time of the year. And he couldn't understand anybody who didn't love this time of the year. And I understand that for those, there may be heartache and it may be difficult at this time of the year. But for, but for the most part, I love the joy. I love the, the thoughts of giving. I love the songs. You know, as we were singing these songs, the, the thing that, that you know, kind of, I guess, disappoints me. Why don't we sing these songs in July? You know, joy to the world. We ought to sing that song every Sunday. That reminds me, ah, sermon theme every Sunday. Okay. <laughs> Coming to a pulpit near you. But I I love these songs. And I don't know about you, Ronald, and some of you I know. I've been listening to these songs for a month. And somebody changed the words on us on a couple of those, but that's okay. But I do love this time of the year. And one of the reasons I also love it is because if just for a brief moment, so much of our world is at least thinking about Jesus Christ. Now I know that in the scriptures we're not told to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I know that nowhere in scripture do we find the early disciples celebrating the birth of Jesus. I know that we do not know the exact date of the birth of Jesus. But you know the things that we do celebrate, the things that we concentrate on, his life, which is our example. His death through which we receive forgiveness of sins. His resurrection, which gives us hope for the future. None of that. None of that could have happened without the birth. And I want you to think about those moments in history that profoundly changed the world. To me, one of the ones is the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. The nuclear age, that changed the world forever. I think about, for many, you would say 9-11. In many ways, 9-11 changed the world, not just this country, but changed the world Forever. July 4th, 
1776. The signing of the Declaration of Independence changed the world forever. Now, nobody knew it at that time. Nobody was real sure where it was going. Even those who signed it were a little unsure. It could have all gone way bad. It could have been a disaster. And it took time. But over time, that Declaration of Independence led to the United States of America and the great country that exists today. In an instant, in a dirty stable in Nazareth, to I'm sure a very frightened teenage girl, without a lot of fanfare, with some shepherds who came by, and a little while later, some wise men from the east, but other than that, Not a lot of commotion going on. Not a lot of acknowledgement. No news, you know, media out there. You know, I I, I was interested, you know, that, that, you know, when one of the royal, when a royal baby is born, you know, at the hospital, they got all the news trucks and everything, you know, and it's just such a big deal. The king of kings was born. The son of God was born. And in an instant, the world changed. Now, it didn't change immediately. It took some time. It took some doing. But the world would never be the same. In the birth of Jesus, we see remarkably displayed the nature of God. And in the birth, we can see a variety of characteristics of God's nature on display. And that's what I want to look at this morning. How can we see God through the birth of Jesus? Well, first of all, we see the power of God. It seems a bit absurd, doesn't it? A virgin conceives and bears a child. That... That just doesn't seem right. It seemed absurd to Mary when the angel told her. It wasn't that she was arguing. She just wanted to explain to the angel who maybe did not understand the biological functions. How can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel said, God will take care of that. It seemed absurd To Joseph, I don't know how Mary broke the news to Joseph. How would you like to be a part of that conversation? But he didn't understand it. He still loved her and he wanted to do the right thing. So he was going to put her away, essentially a divorce in those days for even being engaged. Put her away quietly so that she wouldn't be shamed. But still protect himself. And an angel has to come to him and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You know what she told you? That you snickered at? That you didn't believe? I'm adding in there. It's true. It's true. She's with child by God. 
I'm sure it seemed absurd to all their friends and their family. Now, I don't know how long she was able to keep it, keep the pregnancy under wraps. You know, in those days with robes and things like that, she might have been able to go a long time without anybody figuring it out. But she went to go visit her relative Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was pregnant at the time with John, you remember. And as soon as Mary walked in the room, the baby started doing cartwheels. In Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth knew. Elizabeth knew. It seemed so absurd. But you know, God often does the absurd. He often uses the absurd to show and demonstrate his power. Whether it's telling a man... To build a boat and collect animals. And by that he's going to save the world. Or at least his family. Or maybe it's telling an army who can see no way that they can defeat the greater enemy. Who is so fortified and shut up in its city. That there is no way this army is going to be able to penetrate the walls. And God says, march around that city one time a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And the walls fell down. Whether it's telling a man with leprosy, go and dip in this nasty, stinky Jordan River seven times and you'll be cured. Now, Naaman thought it was absurd. In in fact, Naaman thought it was a bit disrespectful that the prophet hadn't even told him to do that. He sent his servant to. And he certainly wasn't going to dip in that nasty, yucky river when he has far better rivers at home. But he had a servant who, although maybe he thought it was absurd also, had a little faith. And said, Master, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, you'd have done it. Why not just dip in the river seven times? And Naaman did and was healed of his leprosy. You see, when God uses the absurd, it is to show unequivocally, if I said that right, that it is his power. That made it happen. You see if the servant had told Naaman. To do some great thing. And Naaman had done it. And been healed of his leprosy. Naaman would have said. Look what I did. I did this great thing. And so I've been healed of my leprosy. But Naaman could claim no glory. From dipping in the Jordan River. Joshua could claim no glory. For marching around. Jericho. Noah really could claim no glory for building an ark. Jesus spits on a blind man, spits and makes mud and puts it on a blind man's eyes. Absurd. But the blind man is healed. The more absurd, the more the power of God is displayed. And what more absurd thing can you imagine 
than a virgin having a baby. You see, this was prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 7, 14. We know that. And behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a child and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he'll be called Emmanuel. But you see, nobody, nobody, not the scribes, not the priest, not the prophet at the time, not the king to whom this was being prophesied. Nobody understood this to be a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah prophesied other things that we understand and we know. And even the scribes and the, and the teachers of the law knew were about the Messiah that was to come. But this, this had to do with reassuring a king that the enemy would not attack him and overcome him. And it wasn't until Matthew tells us and explains it to us. This is what was meant by the prophecy Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Oh, the Jews said. That's what that prophecy meant. We had no idea. The power of God even exceeded the prophecy of God. But beyond the physical birth, the power of God was displayed in the birth because in what it was, and that was God had become man. Matthew and Luke give all the descriptions of the birth of Jesus and the angels coming and explaining to Mary and, and Joseph and, and the, the shepherds and the, the wise men and, and all those different things. Mark doesn't even mention the birth. He begins right away with Jesus' ministry. John doesn't mention the birth either. Or does he? We all, you know where I'm going, those of you that are from here. You, you know where I'm going. You're reading my mind. John chapter 1 and verse 14. This is John's description of the birth of Jesus. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, if you thought... That God's power was demonstrated by a virgin giving birth? That's nothing. Compared to the fact that this child was all God and all man. I told you, I've told you before. Don't ask me to explain it. Because I can't. But that shows the power of God. The absurd All man. The Bible's clear on that. All God. The Bible's clear on that. And in our human minds, you cannot get those two things into one. They are opposites of each other. But God did it. The power of God. In Jesus Christ made him all man and all God. A power unexplained and uncomprehended. That's why we love this verse in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. You see, if God's power was only limited to what we thought God would do or could do, that's really not much power at all. 
You think of the biggest thing in the world that you wish God could do. And he can do infinitely more than that. More than you can imagine is God's power. And we see that at the birth of Jesus. At the birth of Jesus, we also see the wisdom and faithfulness of God. In the birth, we see the beginning of the culmination of God's eternal plan. I've told you this before. I like to read mystery books sometimes when I read. I don't read much, but I I like to read mystery books. And, well, the name just slipped me. I can't remember the name now of the author that I like to read. She's a she and she writes little bitty mystery books. Anyway, Clark, is there a Clark? Mary Higgins Clark, that's it. All right, thank you for the vibes. Some of you were giving me vibes. Mary Higgins Clark, I used to read her, her, her books and I liked her books. But one thing I didn't like about her books was they ended to me too quickly, anticlimactically almost. Because the book would be, you know, 400 pages. No, forget it. I ain't reading a 400 page book. Okay. The book would be 150 pages with pictures and big print. And you'd read 125 pages and it was all the mystery and all the things that was going on and leading up to trying to figure out who done it and all the investigation and all the clues and all of that. And then all of a sudden in the last 10 or 15 pages, whoop, it's over. Found out who did it and they got arrested or got shot or whatever. I don't know. It was all over. But you know what? That's the gospel. You see, for thousands and thousands of years, God had slowly been revealing his plan through prophecy, through different things. And then all of a sudden, from the birth of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus, Essentially 30, 33 years. You see, it was almost anti, it's leading up, it's leading up, it's leading up, and then in, as far as history and time is concerned, boop, 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 over. In a moment. But the birth began the culmination of the plan that God had all the way back before the beginning. You remember Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve have sinned and God is placing punishment on the serpent and upon Adam and upon Eve. And upon the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity, hatred, between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman. And you, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. Who will crush his head? The offspring of woman will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I believe with all my heart that this is the first prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Who was the seed of woman? Jesus Christ. Did Satan bruise his heel? Did Satan wield a a, a blow to God at the cross? Yeah. Jesus died. He was in pain. He was tortured. He bruised his heel. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and crushed his head. That was God's plan from the beginning. But don't think, don't make the mistake of believing that God's plan was plan B. 
There's a lot of people out there in the world who believe that. Who believe that God intended for, well, intended maybe, expected. That may be the, Adam and Eve to live and never sin. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve sin and God's got to scramble. God's got to come up with plan B. What do I do now? Oh, I think maybe I'll send Jesus, my son, to die. And then, uh, no. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 reminds us, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. What? Before the creation of the world? Before creating man and Adam and Eve? Before Adam and Eve sinned? Before there was even a need for a sacrifice? God had a plan? Yes, He did. Yes, He did. In Genesis chapter 12, you remember that God promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you three promises. I won't test the kids. We went over this like a thousand times in Bible class. I won't, you know. I'm going to make you three promises. One, you're going to have descendants more than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Two, you're going to inherit this land that you now live in. And three, through you all nations of the world will be blessed. That's a pretty cool promise. Abraham goes through his whole life, I guess, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. Never sees it. Never sees any of them fulfilled. But God is faithful. And about 400 years after Joseph goes into Egypt, Israel is a mighty nation, at least numerically. Maybe two million You see, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham that he would have many descendants. And then Joshua leads Israel into Canaan and destroy the enemy and divide up the land. And God has given them the land that he had promised to Abraham. But it's a thousand years after that, give or take. Before all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed. Through Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew and Luke both give the genealogy to take it back to Abraham. So that they could show that this was what was promised by God thousands of years ago. But God fulfills his promise The birth, the ministry, the death, the resurrection were all a part of God's plan. It was the mystery of God that had been partly revealed in the Old Testament. Anybody remember the weekly reader? Remember the weekly reader? If you remember the weekly reader, raise your hand. Do they have the weekly reader anymore? Well, of course, they don't have books. I guess it would be the weekly internet. I don't know. But back in the day, kiddos... We would get the little weekly reader sheet and it would have books and posters. I remember the posters too. It had books and posters and you checked off what you wanted to buy. And then you took it to your parents and they wrote a check and you brought it back. And after you bought so many books, you got a free book. You remember that, you know, and all that kind of stuff. All right. I remember that. 
Now, as I've already told you, I don't read. But there were two kinds of books that I would buy from the weekly reader. One was any kind of sports book. Somewhere I still have a biography of Roger Staubach that I bought in like the fifth grade from Weekly Reader. The other, as I've already mentioned, mystery books. And there was one in particular, Ellery Queen. Anybody remember those? They were books and then it also became a TV show. Now, the reason I liked Ellery Queen is because, first of all, the stories were short and didn't use big words. And secondly, it would take you through this mystery. And the the challenge was to figure out who done it by the time you got to the end. Because at the end, upside down in the book, you know, like the answers to the crossword puzzle or whatever, upside down, it would list the clues that you were supposed to have picked up on along the way. Now, in the TV show, they would go back and show you the clips of the clues you should have got. I love that. Me, I would go to the end, read the clips first, and then go and read, you know. But that's, that's what the gospel, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean that God was trying to hide it. It means that God was just exposing it a little at a time. And we see The wisdom and faithfulness of God. Thirdly, we see the compassion of God. At his birth, we see the compassion. Why would God do this? Why? And we sing that song. Why did my Savior come to earth? Because he loved me so. God saw us as a helpless, defenseless child. God's compassion always leads to action. Jesus was moved with compassion. A compassion beyond description. A a compassion based on his nature, not our goodness. Not on our contribution or even our potential. A compassion that was willing to sacrifice his own son. You see, in a sense, the birth was a sacrifice. The birth itself was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice on Jesus' part to be willing to come down here and live as a human being. It was a sacrifice on the Father's part to watch that happen. Those of us that are parents, we know how difficult it is to watch our children struggle. To watch our children suffer. And we can think about God the Father watching Jesus on the cross and imagine what was going on. But what about the 32 other years before that? You don't think the Father had to watch as Jesus struggled? As a teenager? (laughs) And then as people hated him, people laughed at him and scoffed at him. And nailed him to a cross. It was a sacrifice for Jesus. Subject to human limitations. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. Had all the attributes of God. And now all of a sudden. God is confined to a human body. 
He's hungry. He's tired. He's disappointed. He gets angry. All those human things that we have daily, Jesus had to suffer. But God's compassion for us overwhelmed his feelings as a father. He loved us so much that he was willing for his son to come here and die. And fourthly, we see the sympathy of God. You may say, ah, compassion, sympathy, aren't those kind of the same things? No. Not the way we're going to use them this morning because we're going to use them. And those of you that have been with us for quite a while, we're going to use them in the sense that the writer of Hebrews uses them. When Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4, he talks about the fact that we do not have a high priest who can not sympathize with us. Yeah. And the word became flesh. And God became man. Why? Well, partly to fulfill the sacrifice that was needed to be made. But also. To sympathize with us. To understand what we are going through. To show us a way. To go through those difficult times. His experience is our experience. From beginning to end. From birth to death. He was hungry, thirsty, tired, discouraged. Angry and disappointed and tempted. And yes, he does understand. But more than understand, he helps He provides an example. He provides salvation. And he provides encouragement. An amazing event. Virtually unnoticed by the world. At a glance, simply another baby born in a small, obscure town in an obscure part of the world. I wonder how many other babies were born in Nazareth that night. I bet Jesus wasn't even the only baby born in Nazareth. My guess is maybe the other babies that were born got more publicity. Got more print. But Jesus was born. But looking more closely, we see the power, the wisdom, the faithfulness, compassion, and sympathy of God. For on that day, the Messiah was born and the angels proclaimed peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And yes, absolutely yes, as Christians, we ought to celebrate the birth of Jesus 365 days out of the year. And we ought to live our lives because of what happened in that manger all those years ago. If you're here this morning, we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D F I E L D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 
2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.